if the Bible doesn't prescribe a certain thing, a certain way to worship or a certain form of church government, then we can't adopt it. Whereas we would take the the normative, which precipitated the huge uptick in the purchase and creation of lutes and lyres. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Fellas, how are you? Great. Yeah, doing great, Nick. Matt, as people are listening to this on Friday, you will actually be here in Louisville getting ready to lead along with Anne, a fall retreat for my parish. Have you all written your talks yet, or are you saving that work for the plane? Yeah, we're just trolling the Gospel Coalition old conventions, trying to find some talks we can crib uh, for the. I hear Ed Litton's got some good stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, sir. So, so, so our Baptist listeners gone. <laughs> gone. Uh, sorry. Well, goodness, uh, that got yeah, quite. Anne, Anne actually has both of her talks underway i have i have i have one and a half what's the so she topic can go first and you can oh, write yours is, it about, is it about lord of the rings again well no nick nick <laughs> needed he was trying you know he, he decided he wanted to have a conference on 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 christians and failure and he thought Matt and Anne, <laughs> <laughs> that is That's, the first that is the first thing that comes to that mind both experience and knowledge of the topic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and the good news therein, right? Right, right. <laughs> well, we are recording this podcast the week upcoming to Reformation Day, which is October 31st, the anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. We thought we'd take this opportunity to talk about the Reformation. Of course, we do that a lot, including specifically last week. But this week, we wanted to do something different. This week, we wanted to put together in audio form here, a Reformation glossary. A lot of terms associated with the Reformation and the churches that came out of it. And many of those terms have somewhat cloudy meanings or words that have changed meanings over time. And I have a list here of terms that I'm often asked about. I'm sure you all are too. And I'm curious to see how far we can get. I want to start with a distinction that I get asked about all the time. The difference between Lutheranism and Calvinism. I know that Calvinism itself is a term that can be pretty broad, so maybe we start further back. What are some of the main differences between Luther's teaching and Calvin's? Can we can we go even further back from that? Not yeah. to not to hijack the conversation, but given the discussions that we've been observing uh, amongst Anglican Twitter and Facebook, at the very least, uh, Matt, I'd be interested to know your or Nick, you too, but mainly Matt. Um, let's go. <laughs> we, uh, um, what is the what is the allergy to being called, labeled, or using the word Protestant? What is it? I don't understand it. I didn't grow up with it. I reject it, and I I don't appreciate it. But I've seen a lot of discussion about it. Can you help me um, understand that at all? Well, okay. So I I I I'm more than happy to take the, the title Protestant, but I do think that I'm, we're also. We're also, I would say, we're Catholic in the true sense of that word. And I think people understand that in the popular mind, Protestant stands for rebel. Uh, those Schismatic. Yes, yeah, schismatic. I mean, the, the people who are trying to overturn the established church and create some new thing, which is not what any of the reformers thought they were doing. 
Um, but that's that's how it's per, that word is perceived now. And so, if you're Anglican or you're you know, or you're, you're you have a, you have a classical mindset, you're going to say, "Well, I, I, I'm not I'm not that. I'm not a rebel. I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to overturn. Uh, I'm not with those who would overturn the church. Uh, we want to re uh, to to reform the church and to think of the church in terms of what the fathers how the fathers understood it and and of course how it was birthed through the, the Jesus and the apostles but we we're not overturning it we're just reforming we're we're we're, we're putting it back to where uh reshaping it to the place where it was before the the excesses of late medieval Catholic Roman right. Catholicism. Well now I understand that, but I'm right. talking about it but sorry and I, I appreciate that and I and I agree with that. Uh but when I'm thinking about your 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 person on the street, you know, you have all the magisterial reformers, the Lutherans, the Calvinists, um, the Anglicans, um, you know, who by and large retained much, not a lot, not all. I mean, there's various distinctions. So you have this, this relatively small niche of Anabaptists and sort of the radical Anabaptists who, you know, skewed all previous church history, all um, creeds, all, but that seems to, I mean, maybe it's just because, and maybe because we, we have inherited here in America, such a predominance of that, that there is a kind of a knee jerk reaction to it amongst people that have either grown up in uh, sort of a more historically reformed reformational tradition or, or have joined it. I don't know how to, uh, but anyway, I just, it's, it's interesting to me because when I, as I was growing up in a decidedly and apologies to my pastors and leaders, but I would say uh, a uh, not not a uh, thickly uh, to use a sociological term uh, theological church. You know, it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> deeply deeply. Uh, it was it was Christian and biblical, and and I'm grateful for the for the formation. But I, I would say that there was some some uh, depth that was lacking. Uh, nevertheless, I understood that there was a great divide at the time of the Reformation between broad, incredibly broad strokes, people who trusted solely in, um, you know, the salvation through faith, justification by uh, grace through faith alone, or something to do with the church, you know, and that meant either you were Catholic or Protestant. That's how it was. That's how, and, and again, I know now what I don't know then, didn't know then about uh, relatively unsophisticated that was, and yet the broad, the broad uh, contours still remain. And so I, I wonder why in a discussion amongst people who otherwise agree, you know, let's say I'm a, a 1689 Baptist confessional and you're an Anglican and you're a Missouri Synod Lutheran, like we have much more that unites us than divides us. And yet there seems to be an allergy amongst some of that conversation to being lumped together as Protestants. And I, I don't know. I, I don't I just was, uh, as the whole Reformation week was unfolding online, that was a, with all the arguments that I thought we could have been having, that was not one amongst actual Protestants. Now, you know, we haven't brought in the Anglo-Catholics, haven't brought in sort of um, people who actually reject some of the theological distinctives of, of the broadly Reformed church. And I know we're using all the words that we're supposed That's to right. find. That's that, right. um, I think there's kind I, of an embarrassment though to like, you know, there's always there seems to be this kind of inferiority complex, uh, not with everyone, but with some, when it comes to the Roman Catholic Church. So that their their criticisms of Protestantism like cut deep in some people's hearts. It's so interesting. They, 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 they we don't want to be the kind of Protestants that the Roman Catholics are are critiquing as having me my Bible under a tree or you know the, the we're we're different than that. So um, we're going right. to distance ourselves. We're distancing ourselves from from that title. Same kind, same kind of thing you see on the left, where evangelicals don't want to be associated with evangelicals, uh, because that 
that conjures up you know, the Trump voter in the, in the secular person's mind. So we're so embarrassed by that title. We're just going to flee from it and and call ourselves something else. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, I see that, too. I mean, anyone that can claim Thomas, for instance, it, it, whatever you think of his theology as an intellect, as an intellectual on your side, um, there's an air, a rightly deserved air of sophistication, even if you disagree with them, that um, people like to um you know, marshal to their defense when necessary. And I don't disagree with that to a certain, uh, to a certain extent, but, but um, anyway, I just thought it was it thought just to begin the whole discussion of reformation week from an Anglican perspective. I, I thought that it was, um, I don't know. I was, I saw it to be interested and I was right to hear what you would say about that because I'm sympathetic to um, the rationale behind the impulse, if not the actual sort of carrying through with, with the actual disagreement. Cause I think, but there we go. So Matt, back to your, question nick you know the discussion between calvin and luther uh matt what's what what is your take on that and, i mean they were uh, not exactly it. contemporaries were they I mean luther was right was, a little earlier uh, yeah earlier than, than calvin and, and luther was of course the one who was credited rightly with as the one who started the, the the reformation luther you know just just in terms of temperament of course i mean luther was far more uh, volatile less systematic in his thinking although he wrote several commentaries uh, many commentaries in the scriptures, um, and he was a was a, uh, a lecturer on a professor and lecturer on uh, biblical exegesis and in, in various uh, universities. But he his he he was not as systematic in thinking through the theology of reform as as Calvin was. And so it's interesting as you read his writings, you can see him, you know, kind of one in one place saying one thing and another place saying something else. It kind of contradicts what he said earlier. And, and uh, for example, I had a, I had a, an online discussion with um, someone who since has, has, has moved over into the Roman Catholic church uh, who was quoting Luther at me as, and he was quoting correctly, Luther saying, well, if, Hey, if you, if you can, if you are in any way opposed to the father's, if you disagree with them, then you're disagreeing with Christ. Uh, we need to read the Bible through the lens of the fathers. And then um, I went back and found a sermon in which Luther was saying, oh, no, the Bible is the measure of the fathers. And so, right. so he's just not he's just, he, he's not a systematic thinker, but he's a he's brilliant guy. He wasn't a systematic thinker, though. But he was he did have those fundamental insights, which I think are key and core to the Reformation, which is, you know, first and foremost, that. Uh, we're justified by by faith alone. That the justification is something that we take hold of by faith, rather than uh, something that we both uh, that we have, that is imparted to us, but through the sacraments, and that we we must uh, work with, cooperate with the grace of justification throughout our life in order to maintain it. And then it's not really a done deal until the end. We can get this later when we're talking. If you if you want to talk about imputation versus infusion, but but his fundamental insight that that justification is something that happens when uh, we take hold by faith of something external to us, a righteousness not our own, a righteousness that's given to us from God about and 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 through and to which we have nothing to add. That set him apart from the thinkers of his day. And I think it set him alongside the thinkers of the past and, of course, the apostles in Christ. That insight, the insight with regard to the scriptures being superior or the supreme measure of truth in the church, which um, he defended quite vociferously, and his understanding of grace as being not just sufficient, but also all that there is really that would enable us to be 
be acceptable to God. Those were all his insights, and uh, for that we we owe him a great deal, a great debt. Calvin came along after him, though, of course, and systematized a lot of the thought. Calvin didn't think of the, the tulip acronym that we now use, but but you could probably find those those aspects of uh, the doctrines of grace in his writings, um, the institutes. I, I would say are probably the first modern systematic theology ever written, and he has has passed down to us a tradition of thinking through the Catholic the Christian faith in in a very careful and uh, unified way so that one doctrine all the doctrines fit together uh, of course I'm not saying he's the first one to, to, to see theology that way but I guess in the reform tradition he's the first one to do that um the differences I guess would be the primary differences they're gonna have a lot you guys to debate about this but the primary differences uh would be with regard to the sacraments and with regard to perseverance Modern Lutherans will, will argue that Luther himself uh, was not quite as Calvinist as we Calvinists would like to say he, that he is. They would say that he always had, and I, I kind of agree with them here, that he always had a notion that one can fall away from genuine faith and be lost, um, be lost forever. And that was pretty much necessary to the way that he was thinking because of his understanding of, of baptism in which he understood baptism as necessarily imparting new life, spiritually speaking, um, regeneration. And if you believe that, if you believe every baby is who's baptized is given new life and faith in Christ through that baptism, um, then of course you have to jettison the idea that that, that, that Calvin articulated and that uh, those within the Reformed view hold, which is one of the perseverance of the saints, that, that God will continue to keep you in faith throughout the whole of your um, of your Christian life, if he brings you to genuine faith, so so there's, that's one major difference: uh, the the question of perseverance and the question of the of what exactly happens at baptism, um, and then of course the question of what is what what takes place at the Eucharist. Both Luther and Calvin would both agree with the idea of real presence, but real presence in a different way. So so. Calvin would be more associated with the idea of us partaking spiritually in the body with the body and blood in the body and blood of Christ uh, at, at the Eucharist, whereas Luther would be saying we you know we're we're at, we actually do in the actual elements feed on Christ um, Christ's body and blood as well as the wine and the bread. That's right. Everything you said is correct. <laughs> okay, I'm in. we can yeah, shut this down. Now. That's right. Well, but I think it's important to it's important to remember that you know Zwingli and Luther, you know, were contemporaries, and this beginning of the debate between what takes place at the Lord's Supper was set into motion when they had their famous sort of attempted um, sort of reconciliation meeting, um, where uh, at least in good report, Luther had been um, listening to uh, Zwingli who was Swiss reformer argue for um, some version of the, of the real presence that would not actually have a literal body and blood or an actual body or physical body, however you want to however whatever language will fail us in describing the, the, the position. And Luther famously had been carving to the table, hocus corpus meum, this is my body from Latin, you know, like this is, he just said, kept pointing to it and said, this is, this is the final word when the issue, Jesus said, this is my body. So there we have it. And so, what I find interesting in the history of the development of the two churches, and again, not to play the Anglican middle where you want to say both of them were right in, in certain ways and both were wrong, but um, 
in good Anglican fashion, we do sit high, theologically situated between the two. Um, you know, Dermot McCulloch in his book on the Reformation and his biography of Cranmer um, lays this out in detail over many period and many pages about how theologically we were, um, you know, attempting to em embody or embrace uh, some of the best insights as, as was were considered by Jewell and Hooker and others from both the continent and um, uh, well, well, from from the Wittenberg and Geneva at the time, you know, after Cranmer's death. But what's interesting is that because you had this sharp and stark divide um, in the you know early 16th century, that over the next 200 years or so, the divide couldn't have, could not be traversed, but had to be sort of further explicated. And so you you have a you have a situation where a small step apart at the beginning, or what seemed like a small step over you know three centuries or more, actually became quite an an unbridgeable gulf. You know, so you had the both the the um, reform scholastics and the Lutheran scholastics, you know, double, triple, quadrupling down on this divide. You know, so you have the you have the discussion about uh, the ubiquity of Christ, you know, um, how could Christ be both seated at the right hand of God and present in the Eucharist, right? So you have the development of the, the Lutherans, I think pejoratively called the extra Calvinisticum, where they were saying, well, you have like an extra Calvin put a little bit of extra into the sort of Trinitarian formulation. So there's a little bit of Jesus that's outside of the incarnate Christ, who is still present and seated at the right hand of the Father, even while he was in his um, human form on earth, which is sort of how he um, is communicated spiritually, but he's still physically on at the right hand of the father. You know, so, so again, I mean, you have these, these relatively, or these, these quite elaborate um, intellectual formulations. You have the, the communicatio idiomatum, you know, the, the communication of the attributes, the Lutherans would call it, which allows for the, the omnipresence of the physical Christ. So therefore you can have Christ both seated at the right hand of the Father and present in the sacraments at the same time, which of course is, is sort of mind blowing to the reformed and a and and in certain Lutheran formulations, the the essence of the gospel itself, you know, so that that's where the discussion led. It led from a, you know, we're having a we're having a a you know over a couple of beers a theological discussion, you know, in southern Germany um, between Zwingli coming up from the countryside and Luther coming down from the from the Schwarzwald. Uh, that has now led to, in certain circles, you know, a almost entirely um, sort of competing understanding of of the church and sacraments from one side of the one side of the Reformation to the other. And again, I can look at these sympathetically and with a little bit of detachment because, as an Anglican, we haven't been forced. I mean, I, I've given this a version of our Anglican. Um, sort of middle uh, Protestant way to both Lutherans and Reformed, Reformed Baptists at the very least. And, you know, the way that I've described it, which is, is that we, we appreciate and observe what's taking place on both edges of the Reformation here. Uh, it's just we as Anglicans are not as comfortable saying and um, putting in, in, in pen, much less in stone, some of the things you are, although we can affirm them in pencil, if that makes any sense, like we can. And so I think, you know, like, I mean, I think the presence of Christ, where and when's the presence of Christ in the Eucharist is a perfect example. And you can go back and read, you know, Zwingli on this, you can read, um, uh, you know, the, the, the ongoing debates, and I'm hearing our Roman, our REC friends already, uh, 
up starting to boil and send me emails about this. But nevertheless, uh, you know, you can hear the debates about the extent to which Zwingli had his hand in the Eucharistic uh, theology of Cranmer, you know, in the early 1559 or 1552 prayer books. You can read explicitly how Peter Martyr Vermigli, who was, you know, proto-reformed, if not reformed himself, and Heinrich Bullinger, you know, had a substantial editorial uh, freedom over between the 1549 and the 52. And, and again, all that being said is that you have this um, between re- reforms and Lutherans, you have a, a genuine desire to, to locate the promise of God and then structure a systematic theology around it in such a way as to give comfort and assurance to the adherents of the of within the people within their churches. And so that's taken a different form decidedly. But I think that, um, you know, as Anglicans, we can appreciate influences from both of the edges into what we have inherited as um, as our own um, sort of sacramental way, middle way forward, um, the true via media. <laughs> Are you guys using reformed to simply mean the school of thought proceeding from John Calvin's theology? And if so, are the words reformed and Calvinist synonyms, or do they have other meanings that are taken up inside them? I would say they're not synonymous. I would say definitely that when when people tend to talk about the reformed world, they're talking about a world in which Calvin is a major player. And it is not the Lutheran world, um, but it is it is not necessarily um, all taken up with with Calvin. I would say that the Anglican articles are are reformed in their in their character. I mean, JD's right that there are some Lutheran, and of course, there's Lutheran major Lutheran, Lutheran influences there. But I would I would probably categorize it as a reformed confession. Um, and and so and and, and there there are differences within the reform world with Calvin's understanding of the sacraments and Calvin's understanding of, of even the way sanctification works. I would say there's some, there's some distinctions between Calvinists and the Puritans, uh, pure Calvinists and the Puritans, but both would, both would reside within the, within the Reformed world. So Reformed, I think, would, would best be characterized as that, as that body of, of thinkers who would certainly agree with, her, with, the, with the doctrines of grace but they would have emphases that might differ in certain regards, and that is a is a different different realm than the Lutherans. But we would have we would share some different, but Reformed thinkers would share some definite uh, agreements with them with regard to the the solas. Um, but yeah, there's there's a wide range. You know, one of the one of the unique things about Anglicans uh, within the Reformed world is our that we we don't take the regulative principle. Of worship, which is something that almost every Reformed tradition receives, which is the Bible. Uh, if the Bible doesn't prescribe a certain thing, a certain way to worship, or a certain form of church government, then we can't adopt it. Right. Whereas we would take the the normative, which precipitated the huge uptick in the purchase and creation of lutes and lyres, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and timbrels. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> so I would say I would say the reform world is broader, I think, than just Calvinism, and and yet it's uh, it's not. It, Calvin certainly shaped and and is probably a good a good character, a good central character to look at if you want to understand what reform theology is. I wonder if you guys would, what your reaction would be to the analogies that I'm about to make here. I've heard, it seems to me that when when I hear the word reformed, I often hear it used 
whether explicitly or implicitly, as a sort of counterpoint to Lutheranism. A lot of times talking about things like the sacraments, whereas when I hear the word Calvinist, it's more often set at counterpoint to something like Arminianism. Right. So Calvinism as a word is more seeming to do, at least in common parlance, with the freedom of the will, whereas reformedness, if that's a word, is is more sacramental and church, whereas Calvinist is about free will. Well, I, I was actually going to say that in my experience of it, and again, Matt, jump in whenever you'd like, but um, that I, it, in my experience, reformed is a seemingly kinder, gentler way of saying Calvinist, but not because there's that much difference between the two, but because the word, to your point, Nick, Calvinist immediately evokes in the minds of at least many of the people with whom I've spoken, including in Anglican seminaries, predestination, bound will, total depravity, and whether they can articulate it or not, the idea that we are not free to choose um, our own salvation um, and all of the commensurate supposed failings of that whole system are are tied up in the in the Calvinist word. Although, as far as I can tell, with respect to those particular issues, saying your Calvinist reform doesn't doesn't change any of that at all. I mean, uh, I don't think there's like a. I mean, I guess there's some moderate reformed people maybe um, that we would call Arminians. Um, you know, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what you would. You would. I mean. Uh, but yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think Luther would be a Calvinist if we're talking right. about well, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. If, if we're, we're talking about the will, will. Here, right? well, that's what I, well, I see. That's right. what's so interesting though, is because we're all Augustinian really. Is what they, what exactly. Is it, and that's, yeah. but see, that's where I think if you're really looking at where the, the, you know, Gerhard Ferdy of, of blessed memory um, had this uh, saying once uh, when he was, because his, his, one insight, you know, whether he had a bunch or, or at the least, the very least, was on the the offense of the Reformed Lutheran, whatever the the Protestant Reformation biblical Augustinian doctrine of the bound will. That was his one. So he said. So he had this joke about how he, whenever he was asked to speak uh, at various conferences or churches or whatever, whatever they asked him to talk about, ultimately he would always just talk about the bound will, because as in his words, he said it fired every single synapse in your brain. Like it, it touched on every single question you've ever had about God. Like who am I? Who is he? Is he good? Is he just? Am I evil? Is he righteous? Like all of the questions are bound up in the, in the one assertion that Jesus himself said, you did not choose me, but I chose you, right? Um, what does that mean? And how could that be true? And how could that possibly be good news? I mean, that's, that's fundamentally what I think it means to be um, a, a, an heir of the Reformation, is to have somehow not reconciled, but at least, the very least died to the pretension that somehow that is bad news, um, or at least that is something not um, the, the mystery of God and his, in his sovereign providence to be worshipped, feared, and adored. I think that was the crucial insight that, uh, that, that united the early Reformers um, around the necessity for preaching the gospel, like in Romans 10, and the one that continues to be the most offensive and easily supposedly rejected by people who otherwise would have no idea what the difference between Lutheran or Reformed or Calvinist or, or Mennonite or whatever, you know, whatever you want to, whatever uh, flavor of supposed Protestant about which you were speaking, because fundamentally what they hear is I'm not one of those robots one of them we've talked about this before but i, th I mean that, that's just anecdotal but it's anecdotal now formed over 
you know, 30 years of considering this question all the way back into high school. When I asked certain people, my friend, like, why don't we go to First Pres downtown? They have a good youth group and they have pizza on Sunday nights. And, you know, they, they've got um, all of the cool kids go there. And they're like, well, those are those those Presbyterian, uh, you know, frozen chosen Presbyterians that, um, you know, don't believe that it, anything you do matters. You know, and that was back in like ninth grade. And they, again, if you had even told me that, asked that person, I can't remember their name, but you know, where the book of Hezekiah was in the Bible, I'm sure they would have picked one up to start looking through it. You know, they would have had no idea otherwise what theology was about. And yet that's what they knew about Presbyterians. And I think that persists to this day. I think that there's an allergy to associating with the supposed terrible system of predestination and um, the bound will that um, that people try to distance themselves from it. I don't know. I mean, that's what, what do you think? Back to you, Bob. I mean, I, I think, um, I do think that the, the word, the title Calvinism does carry negative connotations in a way that maybe it didn't during the height of the, the new Calvinist movement, maybe five or six years ago, but now, uh, enough young 20-somethings became Calvinists during that era uh, and entered into the cage state of Calvinism to make it, <laughs> to turn it into a, return it to the its previous status as a, a, a less than desirable title. Yeah. Uh, however, I mean, if, if you, I would encourage you, if, if we have anyone who's listening who's not actually read Calvin, but has a negative view toward Calvinism, read Calvin, read his commentaries, uh, read read the institutes. I think what you you'll be surprised by how uh, you won't be surprised by the rigor of his thought. You probably already know that he's a, that he's a very logical, reasonable, reasonable thinker. But I think you might be surprised by his tenderness, his compassion, his love for God um, and for people. That is sometimes not reflected by those who call themselves Calvinists in our day, and his, and, his, and his willingness to be open to uh, to other other traditions. It's interesting, you know. Um, Calvin would not go so far as to say that the Roman Catholic Church is not a church. In, in the Institutes, he was saying, well, they still have the, read, the scriptures read, and the, there, are other, there are congregations within the Roman Church where the, the gospel is preached. He was very—he uh, likened the Roman Catholic Church to the church in Corinth. The, the, the Paul didn't consider excommunicate, but— even as flawed as they were, they were still part of the church. It's very interesting um, to compare that to maybe modern day uh, Calvinists and the way they they view the Roman Catholic Church. But um, but so I would encourage you to read him if you have a negative view of Calvinism. And I would suggest that maybe your negative view of Calvinism is really more associated with later uh, later Calvinist thought than actual actual Calvin. Unless, of course, your rejection of him is the sovereignty of God and the bound yeah. will and the election. Pro- well, but even <laughs> then, I think, okay, even then, I think you'll have a really mis- a weird idea about that. So that, oh, if, if you believe in the, the Calvinist formulation of predestination, then you believe we're robots. I mean, nobody, nobody yeah. uh, you, right. you, we have, we have no, human beings are just kind of puppets on a string. And, you know, Luther, Calvin, both of those guys dealt with that pretty effectively as did Augustine before them, before them. Um, and uh, I would just encourage you to read, go to, go to the sources at Fontes, read the, read the people that you um, have a problem with before you uh, articulate your problems. It's much easier to just go on Twitter and find people I agree with already. So. But I'll take that under advising, advisor counsel. <laughs>
I think another fruitful avenue of discussion for us is to go back to the word reformed. And I want to get you guys to react to another common formulation that I hear, which is that the more sort of Lutheran idea is that both justification and sanctification are monergistic, i.e. that they are activities done by God to us. Whereas in a more reformed formulation, justification is monergistic only by God to us, whereas sanctification is more synergistic. We, we work along with God to participate in sanctification. Is that an unfair characterization of reformed thought? Is that true? What, how do you guys react to that? I, I, I have a real uh, issues with that. So yes, and then the one, of course, everyone would agree that the justification is monergistic. However, we have to talk about what we mean by that. The individual does place his or her faith in Christ. There is an actual act of the will in that. It's only an act of the will that is made new. It's, a, it's, a, it's not, it's, it's a will that's been reformed and renewed and restored. <laughs> and made, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a will that's been that's that's not the the will of the flesh but a will that's been reborn by the spirit and and given the grace to choose um, um god so it's monergistic in that sense and and then i i think if you read calvin i mean i i, I have heard reformed modern day preachers say justification is monergistic sanctification is synergistic but if you read calvin he lo he locates any cooperation that the the human being the human person has in sanctification with the new person with the new with the with the, the same new person who trusted in Christ is the same new person who does as Christ commands. It's all grace. It's not our own efforts. And this goes back to, I mean, Calvin is just riffing off Augustine who said, you know, uh, anything, the good that we do, it's because of God or anything bad is because of us. So, so, so if you want to, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to credit anyone with your good works, it's not your, your goodness and cooperating. It's a, it's God's goodness and giving you the grace to do whatever you do. Um, so I, I, I would say that classic Calvinist understanding of synergism, I mean, of, of sanctification would only be synergistic in the sense that the new self, given you born by God, does because of its new nature want to and at times does obey obey the the commands of God. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not synergistic in the way that we might think of it um, outside of that context, where. The, the kind of natural self is contributing its part to God's grace. And then they're both kind of working together. That's not what, what classically reformed people would say. I think where the rubber meets the road seems to be in the homiletic, right? Where some preachers would, would form their homiletic around the idea that a Christian is now able to receive the law proclaimed in a new way in a, a non-killing way, but in a way that can now teach and inform and spur on to those good works that the Lord has indeed, as we would say, prepared for us beforehand. Whereas a homiletic for someone in this Lutheran formulation that we've discussed might might look a little different. Okay, so uh, there is, I do agree, there's an emphasis within the reform world, more of an emphasis on sanctifi sanctifying, sanctification, 
than there is in the Lutheran world. And that, and that there is this notion that the, the, the redeemed person is able to see the law as not just a curse, but also as a light to the path and a, and a guide to the feet. Um, that's, that's absolutely true. However, I, I think that going back to the, the sources, you would still find, you know, Calvin preaching, you know, early reforms, reform people preaching, okay, do this. This is how you should act. This is how you should behave. This is what you should do because Christ commanded and he's your Lord. Um, and thanks be to God that he, God sent his son to die on the cross because we don't do it as we ought. <laughs> right. So, so you see those two things paired, I think, and, and, and traditionally where they're not paired, I think the reformed, and I'm speaking as a reformed person, the reformed person is an error. If you can hear a sermon, I've said many times, if you can hear a sermon where you're told you as a Christian need to stop lying. So just, you know, you're a new person now. So go outside these doors and stop lying. Amen. <laughs> if, right. if, that, if that's what you hear, that's, that's bad. A, 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 is so a rabbi could preach that. That's right. Um, and and so and so the reformed person who's preaching that is is wrong. He needs to also say, and when you lie, thanks be to God that we have the cross to flee to that, and that the blood of Christ is is was not just given to us at our conversion, but it's it, we we run to it and flee to it every day of our lives. Yeah, well, I mean, I think this goes back to the, um, well, the distinction between law and gospel that we talk about all the time, because, because the theologically speaking, um, I was just reading about up on this again the other day, just refreshing, but, you know, it's only because of the Apostle Paul and his brilliance, his divinely inspired brilliance, that we even have a uh, concern about whether there's a distinction between the law and the gospel. Like we, we, we wonder why life under the law would be a curse because of the apostle Paul, as opposed to just simply appreciating that the law life under the law, um, even the law of love in Jesus would somehow just be the duty and obligation of the Christian person. Like that's, we otherwise would not understand this distinction and this juxtaposition without the apostle Paul's insight into the old man and the new man, which you're referencing here, Matt, like the, the life under the life of faith and the life under the, the law of sin and death. And so to the extent that the, that the old Adam needs to continue to be killed and, and judged, well, then the, the reformation adage, lex semper accusat, the law always accuses, remains in force because, you know, the law is only a terror to the unjust, as Paul says in Romans. Um, and so if you're sitting there in, in church and the whole sermon is on um, not lying and you haven't <laughs> lied anytime soon um, recently and you have, uh, you know, you have somehow um, been able to examine your heart and have lived uh, without any duplicity at all, well, then that's not a that's not an accusation to you. You know, that's not a um, that's simply a, a kind exhortation of, you know, of what the just and righteous should do. Now, of course, Jesus came to eliminate any uh, pretension that we could somehow fulfill any of these just commands of the law from the inside out, which is what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about, because, you know, we could all be sitting there saying, well, I haven't lied, cheat or steal like the rich young ruler, you know, all these I've kept from my youth. And then Jesus, knowing the one thing he lacked, which was actual obedience to the law from the heart, just expressed exposes his 
his transgression of the 10th commandment by saying, go sell everything you own and give it to the poor. And he goes away. You know, I love the incredibly understated. Uh, it goes away. It's hardened. That's right. He was, he was at a boy. What a all shucks. Jesus. Bummer. Um, that's right. But I think, you know, but this is the great insight of the, of the reformers. And again, I'm more in this, in this particular issue, I'm more versed at least what the Lutherans are talking about just having done my doctor work in this, but, but I'm fascinated by it because when, as you said, those two things, i.e. the law and the gospel, are, are held in distinction, not to the exclusion of, of each other, but distinction, well, then the law is preached to its fullest pitch every single sermon. You know, you, some of you are hearing me, this law on adultery, thinking you've, you've escaped the Sith of the um, Reaper, like you have not, you know, like Jesus, and we just going to Jesus, like any of you who have thought, you know, you who think you have have escaped because you haven't physically murdered anyone. If you've thought in your heart of anger, you have killed your brother. You know, this is the point of the law is to bring you to your knees. And then we raise them up by faith, by preaching the gospel to the, to the now dead in their sins and trespasses um, ready to be resurrected sinner. And the, the, the brilliance of the Anglican church in this respect, and Ashley Knoll's book on, essentially it's on Augustine, really, his book on Cranmer and Augustine's influence on Cranmer. The brilliance of the Anglican church to this very point is that they put into liturgical form those two words so that even if the sermon is terrible or the minister's having a bad day or, or for whatever reason, the law comes in at its pitch, the gospel follows it up, and there's this, there's this repetition of it week in and week out that does exactly what you're saying can be forgotten in certain um, you know, theological systems that don't have this, this deeply enmeshed in their DNA, because, um, you know, I think I, I had a conversation with someone once uh, with a reform person, very high uh, profile reform person that I had the opportunity to spend some time with. And he was talking to me about the, the what was some of the Lutheran concerns with reformed soteriology and sanctification, you know, sort of this idea. And I said, well, as far as I can tell, it's in theory, there's very little, um, you know, that we could disagree with the hopes that we both share about people evincing the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what we want. That the there's an epistemic governor on our hopeful pretensions that Lutherans want to always hold in front of just about everyone is the cross and say, not so fast. <laughs> you know, just like I hear you. Like we want to be do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. You know, Micah, we want to, we want to rejoice in the law of the Lord in our hearts in Psalm one. We want to um we want to be these people, but we want to also appreciate the depth of our need and the um the frailty of our of our human fleshly arm. And I think that's where at its best, at their best, I think Luther and Calvin can be read in concert with each other as as wanting the wanting the the same thing um, and sort of holding each other accountable, you know, to um, different emphases and different edges of of the same Reformation truth, and in the hopes that uh, we actually end up seeing in the end the same fruit, which is more Christians, more more sanctified believers, more fully devoted and um, convicted followers of Jesus. I mean, that's what, that's what we want. Um, you know, how we get there is going to look a little different depending on the church we're in, but um, certainly we can affirm uh, that same hope. I, I'd like to think. And I think that, that when we talk about sanctification, justification, the means of grace, all these things, that if we could keep circling back in amongst that conversation with where are our 
suspicions about our capabilities, you know, and where are our legitimate grounds for our hope, I think we would find a lot more common ground than, 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 than uncommon ground. Um, and at least I have, I've experienced that in my own life. And I, and I, and I know it's, um, you know, I find great comfort in that, take great comfort. I think one of the reformed insights in this, and I think this is where, for me it was where some of the conversation gets kind of fraught is, you know, the law is a curse, but it's also like, I think the further you progress in the Christian life, you also see it as more beautiful as you go on because, because, wow, I, I do wish I could be, I could be that person. I, w- I wish I could be the person described in the scriptures who is righteous. I'm not, but I, 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 but I see that the beauty of that, you know, it's interesting. I, I became Christian 25 years ago at that point in time, I was like in my twenties. Um, I had no desire to, to stop, you know, doing half the things I was doing. I'm just none. Um, and over, and over time I've begun to see, it's really beautiful to be able to stop, to, to, to want that, to want to stop to do that, doing those things. And, and so, so I think the reformed emphasis tends to be on the beauty of, of holiness. There is a, there's, there is a beauty to it that we can't attain and we're not going to attain in this life. But that, that should be reflected on, and and and, and that we should, getting to your point, then c- come back and, and say, okay, well, I'm not there, so I need, I, I, of course, I need the cross. Of course, I'm a sinner. Of course, yeah, I think I think going to kill me. Yeah, I, I totally agree with the experiential depiction there. What I what I'd be interested in talking about is I think that theologically speaking, what you're describing is an is a growth in the sanctification and fruit yep. of the spirit yeah but but against which there is no law i mean this is this is the yep. this is i think this is how how and again i've i've thought about this i mean as much as many and and continuing to work out so i love the conversation because for instance you look at the 10 commandments right so to the to the believer you will have no other gods but me is not a is not a threat it's a promise you know and down the list and down the list now now at times in the life the the sine wave of faith and the in the 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 resonance of faith and unbelief you know um then there are times when you have no other gods but me even to the life of a believer because of the weak sinfulness and the weakness of the flesh becomes a threat once again like it because it's the law and so i think that's for me, I mean, that was the last chapter of the book I wrote. Um, we call it the resonance of faith. I think that there's this this Romans seven reality to the life of the believer, which necessitates preaching and the the means of grace and all of the various um, gifts that God has given us to hold us fast, um, because there is this resonance between belief and unbelief, which 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 works itself out in the the exchange between a law a law and a promise a threat and a promise and i think this is where you know when you're young or when you're new in the faith or whatever you're just you're beginning a lot of the threats to your autonomy and threats to your freedom uh sound like that very thing threats you know i mean like marriage you know marriage forsaking all others be faithful to her as long as you both shall live you know for many young people or many old people for that matter that sounds like an un- unbelievably limiting and threatening uh constraint on their freedoms and yet in the life of faith, it becomes the basis, not just an ancillary part of it, but the basis for the confidence and the hope and the and the comfort that you take within this re- this this relationship. I mean, among others. And so, similarly speaking, theologically, I think that if you 
and this is why you're uh, the good reformed, Matt. Um, if you, uh, <laughs> because if you if you don't lose the pastoral heart for the actual life, the miserable offense of sin is the old prayer. You know, the uh, the existence of them. You know, um, is grievous unto us. You know, the burden of them is intolerable. We used to say in the right one prayer book. If you lose that, which I mean, any Christian is prone to lose that, but I think particularly theologians who aren't in the pulpit and aren't in marriage counseling sessions and aren't dealing with 16-year-old parents of 16-year-old wayward children, theoretically, you can lose the the actual pathos of those prayers um, and begin to develop a system which, which explains it away or sort of justifies it or puts a a system around it that 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 inculcates you from the actual painful reality of the life of sin and i think that's where you know you and and i by god's grace me and and other people who are um who are wanting to be theologically astute and 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 articulate and nevertheless still dealing with with the the righteous um judgment on sin which brings about misery death and destruction um then i think that that is what keeps people close to not losing as you put these two words these two these two because you can't ever forget that you know as much as you should be sanctified you're sitting here in my office as a 50 year old man having blown up your life because of you know two months of blind hedonistic self-destruction and what are we supposed to do about this now um says the shepherd to the sheep with four broken limbs you know i mean that's a that's a different experience of theology than you should have known better which of course you should have known better but i'm i wouldn't have if i had known better i wouldn't be here pastor you know but here i am what does jesus have to say to me now and of course the answer isn't well none of your wounds will be painful to you <laughs> because that's that's already a foregone conclusion but there is still hope uh, ashes uh, that can there's life that can come from the midst of the ashes and that's that's what can be promised by holding on to these two these two um, words um, in distinction to each other uh, for the sake of the church. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the further you go in sanctification, the less far you think you've gone. I mean, the further you go in the Christian life, the the more beautiful the law becomes, the more ugly your own sin becomes. And and you see, and you see over and over again, Oh my goodness. I, I, I need the cross. I need Jesus. Um, So, so, my only point was that as, as you grow in Christ, you, the, the law, while you recognize it as a curse, when you look within yourself, you also recognize it as beautiful when you see it Amen. reflected in the life of Christ and his, his fulfilling of the law for our sakes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a, I'm sure we could talk a lot more about the, hmm. these, these differences and distinctions between uh, the more Lutheran way of, de- of being a Christian and the more reformed way. But like you say, thank God we're Anglican, yeah. so we don't have to choose. So, well, so. And I'm glad we've now, we've now written yeah. your entire talk for you. So you can yeah, just, there, yeah. to, uh, that's, that's right. Okay, that's right. <laughs> just upload it to docent and um, yeah. <laughs> We'll go to church on Reformation Sunday and hear the law proclaimed in all its righteousness and hear the cross proclaimed in all its glory for you. Uh, that is going to be all the time that we have together this week. We do appreciate your listening. Uh, if you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. 
Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 oh,